0: It's not an if or proposition anymore. You know, based upon the research, to the extent that you engage those things that give you personal satisfaction and wellness at home, you are doing the likewise for your professional career.
1: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast, where we explore the business and profession of emergency medicine. I'm Leon Adelman, an emergency physician and co-founder of IV Clinicians. Our guest today is one of my mentors, Dr. Gary Tampkin. Gary is Vice President of Provider Development at U.S. Acute Care Solutions. Gary and I worked together back at VEP Healthcare, where I was a medical director and he was VP of Clinician Development. The way Gary handled challenging situations with providers and the way he coached us, I'll never forget. One reason Gary became an effective mentor is because he noticed things were different when he was taking on leadership roles.
0: And I had a tremendous amount of support when I did that. A lot of very experienced emergency medicine leaders who were spending a significant amount of time with me as I fell on every uh, landmine and said the wrong thing at every given opportunity. And I so benefited from having that mentorship and support. And so, as I kind of moved along in my career, I started to look at, you know, who was doing that for all of our medical directors. I think that, you know, in any in in these staffing groups and companies, you have folks who wake up and go to bed uh, worrying about the business side of things, worrying about the documentation side of things, worrying about risk management, worrying about growth of the company. But who you know, wakes up and goes to sleep really thinking about the providers?
1: In addition to being the Vice President of Provider Development at U.S. Acute Care Solutions, he's also the Medical Director of the California Highway Patrol, a SWAT team physician, Chairman of the National Emergency Services Clinical Council, and an occasional expert witness. Gary is a multi-talented dude. So I asked him what tips he has for new grads entering emergency medicine.
0: I think there's the really kind of uh, toolbox answers that you'll tend to get from from attendings to new grads, right? Join a group that fits your values, arrive early and stay late, uh, be patient-centered, complete your charts on time, uh, help colleagues out, attend group meetings, all these things, you know, participate in hospital life, build relationships with the medical staff. And I don't mean to poo-poo any of those, because I think those are all really great pieces of advice that most of us who are, you know, 30 years into this would say, like, all of those make a lot of sense. You could spend a whole day talking about, you know, the time and energy that you really need to put into your most precious resource in the emergency department, which is your nurses, um, listening to your nurses, respecting your nurses, befriending your nurses, defending your nurses. I mean, it, it's always kind of surprising. I, I came from a program where that was really part of the culture, but not everybody does. Mm. So once you get sort of beyond those, the, the thing that I think many of us really struggle with and and the, and the the maybe the thing I'd really love to focus on for folks yeah. who might find themselves in that situation, and I, I think this is maybe something that you experience a little bit later on in the career, Um, is sometimes having to make these tactical decisions about what you're going to do professionally. Mm. Um, And I think oftentimes you get into these situations um, in a career where you're making career decisions and you feel like it's in a one or the other decision between a a really good professional choice versus a really good uh, personal choice for you. Um, and oftentimes it seems like these things are at odds. Um, so for example, should I become chair of the department or, it, or should I become uh, the Girl Scout mother or the Scout leader or uh, be more involved in family life? Geez, you know, to really advance professionally, I need to do this, but to be per, per, uh, personally fulfilled. I need to do this. And oftentimes in life, I think particularly, you know, as you move along in a career, a lot of these decisions seem to be at odds with one another. And I think that mm. that is one of, uh, is a very major cause for professional burnout. Uh, this sense that you constantly have to be giving at work and taking out of the, the family or personal enjoyment side of your life or vice versa. And so my feeling is, is that the secret to professional success really gets down to what Sean Anker talks about in his book The Happiness Advantage, which I think is really a great, great read. And actually, Sean actually was the keynote speaker at an ASAP many years ago. Mm-hmm. So even ASAP kind of recognized this. And what Sean did was he um was at Harvard, if I recall correctly, and they did a study to look at what the single most predictive item in regards to your professional success is. What is the single most powerful predictor of your professional success? Which, again, many of us are struggling with. We're all highly motivated and driven. And certainly like your training and education, your background, how educated your parents were, the wealth that Mm -hmm. you come from, all plays a significant role. But what he found in his research was the single greatest predictor of professional success was your own level of personal satisfaction and happiness. Hmm. And so for me, I feel like, wow, that is quite liberating because right? now it's like when I'm making these decisions, should I take the time off and go do that family vacation? Um, should I get involved in that hobby? It's not an if-or proposition anymore. It's, you know, based upon the research, to the extent that you engage those things that give you uh, personal satisfaction and wellness at home, is, is you, you, you are doing the likewise for your professional career. And I just find that the minute you make that connection, that, that they are mutually inclusive of one another, then the decisions all of a sudden become much, much more straightforward that you can you can take that chairmanship and you should also do the boy scout girl scout thing if that brings right. you joy. You should also take off significant time and go enjoy your family. That that is that is you can if you're having a guilt over that as many of us do, uh, you can put that in the context of really being a professional uh positive as well.
1: Got it. Putting on my skeptic's hat, one could say, well, Maybe it's the it's the professional success that is making the person more happy, in in a uh, world of emergency medicine where sixty five percent of emergency physicians feel burnout. For those who don't feel happy and and are kind of dreading walking through those ambulance bay doors, what what advice do you have for for that situation?
0: Yeah, and, and a lot of us are facing that. And and I don't know that like sort, you know, unless you're just not practicing clinically. Right. I think that I know that after having done this for years, that, you know, the environment is still so stressful. I still have to work on that. Uh, The anxiety and sort of anticipation of a shift and what you're going to show up to. And so again, probably another 30 minute lecture, right? About tricks of that. But but right. I do think that this idea that your own personal satisfaction or happiness is the greatest predictor of your professional professional success then leads people to say, well, okay, well, but how do I do that? Like, how do I become happy? You know, I think over the years, there's like a lot of happiness research now. So again, we can't really go through that. But I mean, depending on which podcast you like to listen to and so forth, there, there is more and more research on, you know, on, you know, happiness research, but a couple of things that habits that I think, you know, aside from becoming a happiness expert, which I think a, you can just start to go explore that. There's a good book called happiness habits that I like by David Anderson, but there's a couple of things you can do right away. I am I have it as a little iPhone note, but you can start to, you know, your brain, most happiness research and brain research shows that, you know, your brain tends to go to the negative, right? Go figure. I guess it's kind of the way we're programmed. And so in in some, you know, kind of happiness habits talk about sort of directing your brain to the positive. So before I go to bed at night, I write down three things that like were really positives during the day so that when I go to sleep, I, I can bring my brain after mm. it dread you know you know doom scrolling and everything else bring bring my brain to like what were three really great things that happened today also in the morning when I wake up I think back to the day before maybe they're different maybe they're the same things I say what were some things that I nailed yesterday what were really some positive things and that that is like a trick to get your brain uh to a positive place at the beginning of the day and and, and people refer to that as a gratitude journal. And so three things that, that were really great about yesterday, three things that I really appreciate about today. So like on today's note, it was like, I got to see you. Like, you know, that's pretty cool. Like who would ever have thought that somebody would wanna have me on a podcast, you know? And I think like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Two is like, I'm at home tonight and my wife's at home tonight. And so that's great. Like we're gonna like watch our favorite show tonight and have dinner. And so that's great. And, and again, so pointing out like three things and putting them to paper or to computer or whatever, I think neurologically has been shown to sort of like get you focused in, in, in a way that your brain doesn't normally take you. And then also sending gratitude to someone is another really common sort of happiness habit. Um, and so in the morning, I'll tend to email somebody or text somebody some gratitude. Um, it might mm. be, it seems, all of this seems like a little hokey and particularly that text or email seems a little contrived, but I still do it and it's amazing. And It might be somebody kind of really, for lack of a better word, sort of peripheral from yesterday, like like somebody I don't really work with a lot or somebody who just did something kind for me or kind of extended themselves. I'll just write a, a bit of gratitude. Um, and and, mm. and so I think there's a lot of stuff that you can start to like a hobby almost look into. Cause I think more than ever, you know, we're really being challenged with our happiness, either professionally or just socially with what's going on, you know, in social media and all the different social issues we're facing. And so to create some healthy habits, I found to be powerful.
1: Yeah, I agree. And and I think the, the flip side is also true that one of the challenges of emergency medicine is we have a sort of gratitude deficit. By the time our work, changes how patients are physically feeling, they're somewhere else. And, and the ones that come back to us often are the ones that that aren't necessarily. they're either they either have chronic issues that are incurable or' we're, they're the the minority that that weren't helped by their first visit in the emergency department. So we have this totally skewed vision. And one of the things that that Gary and I worked on when I was medical director at Tenova Clarksville, was increasing the volume of positive feedback. We turned our survey instead of as a cudgel for clinicians or a patient satisfaction survey, instead of as a cudgel of like your number is 64% and you should be at 68% or whatever. We, anytime some patient gave a compliment to the physicians, which is the vast majority of the time, the vast, vast, vast majority of the comments that we got were positive because these physicians, PAs, nurse practitioners were awesome. They were objectively awesome, doing awesome things for people, and they almost never heard that positive feedback. So it was it was a really uh, great um, initiative to increase the the gratitude that was flowing back to to clinicians.
0: Yep, I remember that. Still doing it.
1: Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure here, I'm Ivy's founder. Both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, filter them by your preferences, and connect with the right employers all for free. Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. So let's talk a little bit more about the, the challenges of burnout and let's take it a little bit to kind of 30,000 feet. So you've been part of emergency medicine and organized emergency medicine for a while. It seems to me that there's at least more discussion of burnout right now and, and frustrations with the job than ever before. Um, and I've been at this 15 years now. What's your sense of what's, what's behind that? Is it, is it just COVID? Is it, uh, EMRs? Like what, what, why are people so much more burnt out now than before?
0: I think it's just the practice environment. I mean, I, I don't I don't know that there's a lot of rocket science to it. I mean, showing up to a shift today, I think for most of us, is so different than it was 15 years ago or 20 years ago, I think, in most departments. I mean, we talk about this a lot. I mean, there was a time in my emergency department where, you know, if you showed up and you focused hard enough and you worked hard enough on a night shift that the goal was to like have a clean board for the morning doc
1: right. to right. come in,
0: right? And that was sort of like, that's what you were working for all night long, you know? And, and darn it, if like you didn't get your charts done, your paper charts at that time, right? And right at like 6.30, a patient would show up and you'd be like, ah, you know, and you try to get that one patient, you know, done. Yeah. And now there's, I think, in most departments there's like no sense of that, right? There's no, I, I feel like, again, in my practice environment, which is a large, busy community envi- environment, th- there's just no kind of chance of that. You're, you're just, it's all, you're almost always kind of ashamed of what the department looks like, and that that sense of control that you had of sort of being able to clean a board or whatever is just is just kind of gone in most of our departments. You know, I think that back in the day. You know, when I got out of Highland in 96, you know, you really made a decision about the sort of environment you wanted to practice in. Did you want to be in a big, crazy county environment? Did you want to be in a in a university-like environment? Did you want to be in a private, sort of cush, well-functioning community environment? Or in my world, did you want to go to Kaiser? You know, and all four of those, mm. you know, were perfectly good decisions to make, but they were all really different from one another, you know? And now... My feeling, they're almost all identical in a way. Like there's no sort of running from it, you know? And so I think that's another piece, which is where we're at, where, you know, all of those environments, all of those lobbies look pretty much, in at least in California, all those lobbies look pretty much the same right now. And I think there's like sort of a sense of like, there's no like big solution on the horizon here that's all of a sudden going to change all this. So I think... That just makes it difficult to come into day after day, without blaming anybody and without saying any of those systems are better than other systems or what have you. But I mean, I don't think it's any big system, any big surprise to anybody listening to this that our healthcare system is is just in a terrible spot. You know, without assigning blame to anybody for it, and we're we're all you know in emergency medicine, we're all the canary in the coal mine in the emergency department, right? Yeah.
1: And the coal right mine is not door. so
0: healthy right now.
1: Yes, you're exactly right. One of the things that you have mentioned in lectures before as a way to uh, to manage the feelings of frustration or, or burnout is this idea of a wellness wheel. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by a wellness wheel? Yeah,
0: I'm such a self-help geek. My wife always makes fun of me for this, but I, I always latch on to all these different things. And the wellness wheel is just this idea that like, to be well... Um, you know, involves multiple different aspects of your life. Um, There's no, first of all, there's, hopefully it's obvious, there's no magic pill for all this, right? And one thing we haven't really talked about, I think, you know, the the one thing that I think is really key though for all this is attentiveness, is what I just Hmm. call attentiveness. Like I I personally don't find any of this easy. Like I've had a successful career in emergency medicine um, and I'm proud of that, but I, I like work on this stuff every day, like I don't just wake up cheery. And I so I do think it requires attentiveness to have a healthy, long career and effort for that, whether you're mm-hmm. in law enforcement, medicine, whatever, I preach that. One way you can sort of organize yourself a little bit about that is, you know, and I don't know if ASAP actually developed this or, or not, but but they've, they've certainly posted it and had this material of was this wellness wheel that sort of just identifies the different areas of your life that are involved in wellness, which would include emotional, physical, like occupational work wellness, a spiritual side of wellness, socialness, an intellectual aspect of wellness. And then one that I think many people don't really pay attention to is a financial aspect of wellness. Mm. Meaning that like if your finances are out of control, it's pretty hard to be well, even if like you're working out like a dog and meditating three days a week. But all these things are a balancing wheel. And I like the wheel concept because anyone can kind of be out of balance at a certain time. So I think it's kind of nice, like I know I kind of check in and at any given time, you know, I might be really, you know, binging on MRAP, feeling really, you know, lecturing at ASAP, really feeling, you know, academically or intellectually together. Um, financially, I've got my act together, but all of a sudden realizing like, whoa, like I'm not, I haven't really spent any time outside of my wife, you know, with friends. Like I, I need to sort of like make some dates or something. And yeah. then, at another time that, you know, during the summertime, it might be all dates and I might be like, ooh, I'm not really, you know, staying staying well read enough or, or any of these things. So I think it's just sort of a nice um, a way to organize sort of just checking in with what I think, and you know, maybe you add some other elements that you think are important for you, or maybe some of these you don't think are important for you, but it's kind of a way of allotting your attentiveness.
1: That's really good advice. So, uh, we've reached the, the concluding part of the, of the podcast. Um, I have a few, a few last questions. One is what makes you hopeful about the future of emergency medicine?
0: The new young grads that I get to interview and hire every day. I can't figure it out, but we're still attracting an incredibly positive, energetic, incredibly bright, innovative group of young emergency physician and APP. Um, And so my hope is, is that they can, they can solve the problems. I haven't been able to figure out the solutions to yet. And I'm, I'm pretty confident they're going to.
1: Love it. And what book or movie would you recommend to our audience?
0: what book or movie? I really love, um, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. I think it should be mandatory medical reading. Have you read it? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Just the idea of how much sensory input we're actually processing at any given time. That's, that's really invisible to us. And just to take a step further, I've, I've, really uh, incorporated that into my clinical life where I feel like given all of the environment that you and I just talked about, you know, that I need for my blink, I need to give my blink a Mm -hmm. chance. And so I spend some quiet time, not hours, not even 60 seconds of just being totally present with a patient so that I can feel like, okay, there's nothing terribly wrong with this person, now I'm gonna get through the visit and do what I need to to serve them well, or ooh, something's really not right here. And I think in risk management and so forth, when you do that Sentinel event review or you look at that malpractice case, you know, it's usually a really smart person working really hard who just didn't have that moment where they took a deep breath and were totally present in the situation and allowed all the dots to get connected. So I try to purposely do that for myself clinically and professionally and socially and hopefully with my kids and wife
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah one of the things I like in blink is they actually have a section on uh, a clinical decision tool it's like one of the OG clinical decision tools for for mi and the the angle there is that it the using the clinical decision tool takes a lot of the the, the brain stress off making those basic algorithmic decisions so that you can focus on higher level stuff. You don't have to spend your time thinking, oh, do I admit this chest pain? Do I not admit this chest pain? You can look closely at that EKG to make sure that that you're not missing something subtle or or ask that next question that ensures that the patient knows you cared about them. It's a really nice section of, of Blink.
0: And that gets to this other uh, term that I've really embraced lately because, you know, I don't know about you, but I just come home from a shift, almost regardless of actually how busy it is, just exhausted, you know, and this idea of decision fatigue and this idea that you're spending, you know, eight or 10 or 12 hours, depending on your setting, just making so many decisions per, per minute. Uh, and how fatiguing that is and how you can just kind of burn out on that. And that's, again, where risk all of a sudden starts to creep up, where you're just exhausted from making decisions.
1: You're exactly right. So if you've been inspired by Dr. Gary Tampkin and want to to connect, Gary, what's what's the best way for folks to reach you? Yeah,
0: my email is um, tamking at USACS.com. And or LinkedIn's always good for me, too. I love being on LinkedIn.
1: That's great. So, Gary, thanks for um, all the inspiration and the and the learning today, um, and for your guidance to me over the years. And hopefully, we'll we'll connect soon. So, thanks for the wonderful interview.
0: Yeah, that was so fun. Hopefully, we'll do it again. We can pick another topic.
1: Thanks for listening to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast. If you have feedback for us or just have some thoughts on this episode, hit us up on social media at EM Workforce. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at emergencymedicineworkforce.com. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Leon Adelman, and if you're in the emergency medicine trenches, I appreciate all of the work that you do. We'll see you again soon with the next episode.